What you believe about yourself and your life is likely not based in reality, but in bullshit stories that you did not consent to, pieced together throughout your life with ideas offered to you from external sources. This podcast is here to help you recognize and dismantle those stories so you can reclaim your power and achieve what you want in life. Welcome to Yeah, I Made That Up with life and business coach, Kelly Jackson. Hi, I love you. And we're talking about a book. Um, so I have mentioned a couple of times on the podcast, a group that I have called the Rexy Collective. And um, it's not available to join yet <laughs> for the public. Um, it is a group of people who were my direct sales clients and wanted to see what it meant that I was transitioning over into life coaching rather than continuing with my direct sales business. Um, and so within this group of people, when I first transitioned them over, I, I asked what kinds of, what kinds of things they needed help with. And, um, I apologize for the background noise. My neighbors are mowing. They have been doing all kinds of noisy things all day. There's not been a good time. So you just get you get some background noise today. Um, but I asked my members, my clients, what what kinds of things that they needed help with, what aspects of life were the most stressful, because I wanted this group to really work for them and utilize that information to create this collective experience of learning how to self-coach, learning how to um, become more emotionally resilient so that the shitty parts of life don't completely derail us. And, you know, doing this together within community to have it support and um, encouragement and, you know, just, just to be part of a community. I believe that community is very important and collective experiences are very important. And so that's what we're doing. And there is an integrated book club within the Rexy Collective. Every month we have a topic and I create some content and a workbook for that month's topic. We have a coaching call that, you know, whatever you bring to the call may or may not be relevant to the topic for the month, but um, the book always is, and a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people said that one of the things that they really struggle with is related to their body, whether that be body image as a generality or weight specifically or functionality or health. Um, so we've got a three month period here where we're focusing on different aspects of your relationship with your body. And we started this month on that three month journey with the book, The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor. And if you have not read this book, I 100% recommend it. Um, and what we are doing this month for our book club is um, we had we have a we have a monthly conversation for, with about the book within the Rexy Collective, and I recorded a conversation that I had with my client Della to discuss this book and to offer some insight for um, you podcast listeners <laughs> about what this book is and how the two of us took the information. Um, I do want to specify that both of us are white um, and we each have different experiences within our own bodies um, that we brought to this book and we utilize the information within to have a really, really interesting conversation 
that I think will be helpful for a lot of people. So I am sharing that conversation with you um, with Della's permission. <laughs> and that is what you are about to hear. So hopefully it is useful for you. Hopefully it is helpful for you. Hopefully it is interesting for you. And if you have been just very curious about what the Rexy Collective is, <laughs> the doors will be open soon. My assistant, my intern, and I are working to put things together so that we can open that for you. Um, so stay tuned. And if you would like to get on the email list so that you will be the first to know, go to pressurepointcoaching.com and sign up for it. Uh, amazing. So, um, I'm just flipping through here to remind myself of some of the big pieces because I, um, visually read the book like a fucking year ago and I primarily do audiobook. And so as I'm looking at it, I'm like, oh yeah, okay. This thing and this thing, um, I really, for these book club books, it might be a good idea for me to listen while holding the book in my hand. I normally <laughs> listen while I walk outside. <laughs> right. It's, I mean, that's how I listen to all of my textbooks. I'm like, I don't want to read this. I'm going to take a nap. So <laughs> I will listen to it while I get groceries. <laughs> Too funny. Um, okay. So this month, the month of May, our Rexy Collective Book Club book is The Body is Not an Apology by the brilliant Sonia Renee Taylor. And I just am enamored with the cover of this book. And every time, I think I've listened to it, I don't know, at least twice, if not three times. And every time I listen to it, listening to, she's the one who narrates, and oh. listening to her describe like not only reading her words visually, but listening to her describe the process by which they chose the cover of the book is so fascinating because, you know, it's her story. And so for her to tell it, it's, I love it. I love when an author is the narrator of their own book. I know that not every author wants to do that. And like, not every author would be good at it, but when it works out, I love it. It's that section, I think it's like the last chapter, maybe it's part of the conclusion of the book was so fascinating because like I didn't consciously think about the cover when I saw the book I mean I did notice from a writing perspective from a marketing perspective this is not typically what a book looks like Mm -hmm. help or otherwise um and I really enjoyed that but I didn't it's fascinating that they actually included that information because that's not generally something that's shared with the public of like how they came to deciding to put a fully nude black fat lgbtq author on the cover of a book which is so incredible yeah and and it's i mean just another example of so many of the things that she talks about in the book about like you can see tons of maybe not necessarily self-help, but like, well, even some of that, like, but nonfiction written by thin white women where they are partially nude or fully nude on the cover of the book and just like artfully draped or whatever. And it's always thin white women. Yeah. And that's okay. Which is just fucking mind boggling. Like just some of the juxtapositions that she makes in this book of specifically with like that um cover art journey mm-hmm. just is like oh yep yep that's mm-hmm. that's the world we live in <laughs> definitely that's something because I know she mentioned that in the book and it got me thinking that like yes thin white women on the covers of any and all books always yeah. um but like specifically in the romance category which obviously was not a romance novel Sort of is, but kind of <laughs> not the same thing. <laughs> no, I I'm down with calling that romance. <laughs> um, but they are filled with pictures of like ripped white dudes that have been 
CGI'd and changed and everything else. And like, I mean, of course, as a cisgendered white woman, I always think about it from that portion of my intersection, what it is like for guys who like, oh, well, my wife, my girlfriend, my whoever, women in general read these books and it's pictures of this dude who's got like an eight pack mm-hmm. and like do you know how hard it is to maintain a six pack <laughs> it's not realistic <laughs> yeah nothing nothing about romance novel covers are are realistic that's for sure <laughs> like I mean realistic and like just generally like how harmful it could be yeah um speaking of which when she talks about I was I was thinking about um before I came up to my office for this conversation I was thinking about the concept that she calls body terrorism and mm-hmm. how aptly that um can be applied to things like the plethora of shootings that have occurred in the last fucking week and how like Going to a grocery store when you're black isn't safe because of your body. And that that is body terrorism. And I don't know, I don't know if information has been released about, or if there's even information known about um, the school shooting today and whether there was any sort of racial implications or whatever involved in that. But those children no longer have their bodies you know, and how like just the, the terminology of body terrorism so, so aptly um, applies to a lot of the stuff that we're going through in our, in our country right now. Absolutely. It, when I was reading that portion, everything just kind of, it was like one of those magical moments where everything just clicked into place exactly how it should be because I have been stressed and doing a lot of thought work and a lot of chronicling on the myriad places that I focus, you know, politically, socially, whatever you want to call it, um, or whatever angle you want to look at it from, but with racism and white privilege and fat phobia and LGBTQI plus everything, and shootings and just everything and it's all these like little different things and it was so overwhelming to me to think about all of these little different things but then making it one umbrella thing which it is one umbrella thing yeah of body terrorism took so much of that stress away because now I don't feel like I'm being pulled in 12 different directions nothing has changed like that I'm still being pulled in those directions. Well, nothing has changed in terms of the factual circumstances outside of yourself. However, Mm -hmm. putting a name to something and being able to say, okay, now I have some sort of understanding to put all of this stuff together can be really powerful. And that's why like, I know some people are anti-labels for gender and sexuality and like whatever, but some people really, really want to have the language to describe themselves. And therefore the ever expanding language that we have is so therapeutic for a lot of people. And so, yeah, of course, of course, having a name to put with all of these things as a collective or as you you called it Mm -hmm. an umbrella, of course, that makes perfect sense. Right. And it just, it was so it was cathartic in a way I was like oh my god it's all it all falls back to this like if you look at the trail all of it falls back to some form of um, body terrorism whether it's the color of the skin or your sexuality or your gender presentation or lack thereof like it's it all falls under that core concept like what you teach in pressure point that we have the same five thoughts just applied differently yeah it's the same one yeah 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 Ugh. um what else what are some of your other big takeaways from this um i 
took notes while I was reading, which is not something that I normally do. I'm very, um, I don't like, I can't even remember what the word for it is right now, but like taking notes in a book. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I annotating, that's what it is. I don't like to mark my books and I got, I think halfway through the first chapter and I rented this from the state library as an ebook. Um, and I was like, okay, I need to buy this because I actually need to annotate this book because I need to go through and there's so much valuable information in it. Um, let me see. There's so many notes. Um, one of the earliest big ones for me uh, is towards the beginning of the book. She says, the voice of doubt, shame, and guilt blaring in our heads is not our voice. It is a voice we have been given by a society steeped in shame. It is the outside voice. Our authentic voice, our inside voice, is the voice of radical self-love. Mm-hmm. And that was something that I I still struggle with a little bit, but I really struggled prior to coaching with you because I didn't understand or have a way to identify um, the distinction between, yes, these are my thoughts, but these are my thoughts because I've been conditioned to believe these thoughts and I've been raised in a society, like she, I think she mentions in the book, if you're raised with French speaking parents, you're probably going to grow up to speak French or right. with a French accent. Like, and to be able to have that, be able to distance myself from it a little bit to help alleviate the guilt and the shame and the everything else that comes with it so that I can dismantle it and so that I can change it. Um, and I also really like using that outside voice versus inside voice because I use that with my friend's kids and with, um, I love him so much, my very ADHD, very loud partner. <laughs> so loud when he's excited and that's wonderful uh, when we're not in the car. <laughs> he's but it's so great. And I mean, even the way that she explains this, um, as much as I don't love because of my sensory overload, when Nathan gets super loud in the car, that, I don't want to say complaining about it, but the way that I complain about it, because I am shaming him when I complain about it, I don't complain about it in a healthy, constructive way, is asking him to take up less space. Mm-hmm. And how is that fair? He's super excited about probably a video game or an anime, let's be honest. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's wonderful. And I love it when he talks about that. But there are ways that like we don't even realize that we're shaming someone. Yes, I am talking shit. <laughs> <laughs> he brought me a note just to ask that question. <laughs> i don't know if this is talking shit i don't know it seems like you're celebrating him a little bit and recognizing something in yourself that you'd like to change i don't know that i call that talking shit (laughs) that's amazing a new season or week or something of destiny came out and he has the day off to be able to play it he took the day off work and that's amazing I love that he does things like that so he stopped his raid in the party chat that he's on to bring me the note that he wrote but he wouldn't sure. come into my office where you can see him because he's <laughs> in his no pants <laughs> <laughs> my I favorite love I love it um but like as I was saying, it's those little things that we don't consciously realize that we're shaming someone for. Like, hey, you're being too loud. Like, I never considered that that was asking him to take up less space. Mm-hmm. And that there's so interesting. different ways that I could discuss that with him. Of like, hey, uh, I have anxiety and sensory overload. This is a confined space. Can we turn down the volume just a little bit? Um, so that I don't freak out 
I love what you're doing. I love the energy that you're bringing, but maybe let's dial it down for now until we're in a less confined space. <laughs> That's so interesting. It, I don't know that, I don't know that I have a similar, like directly similar thing in my life that's like related mm-hmm. to that. Um, aside from Casper, the fucking cockatoo on the other side of the wall of my <laughs> office, I would sometimes like him to take up less space, but he's a very small creature and he has an entire room. I don't think I need to hear him in this room. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you would think. um but yeah like I I don't think that I really have anything that comes to mind that is a similar like being in a car my my partner doesn't my my partner is not very loud (laughs) um and so yeah that's interesting that's something that I never would have considered I really appreciate you bringing that that concept into this conversation Mm -hmm. because that's not something I ever would have considered And that's something that I really want to look at now is like, what are the ways in which I am asking people to take up less space because of my own reaction to something? I mean, there are, there are certainly things where I do get, or times where I do get sensory overload. And so like, Mm -hmm. where, where are the places where my own reaction and my body might um, be twisted such that I am asking somebody else to take up less space. That this is, this is a fascinating, fascinating thing to think about. Um, thank you. Yeah, of course I do it. My favorite way. And I did know that I did this before reading Sonia's book. I had just never applied it to asking Nate to turn his volume down was, Mm -hmm. um, my best friend, uh, has a six year old now son, and he is, a six-year-old child he's yeah. loud and he's rambunctious and he's all over the place and he screams and he makes weird noises and I love that for him you're a kid be a kid um if I don't take my meds I am the devil uh-huh um, and so Andy and I joke about it we're like these kids are gonna grow up and they're, somebody's going to be like acting crazy and they're going to be like, did you take your meds today? Because that's what Andy says to me when, I'm, <laughs> when I start getting mean. Like, hey, did you take your meds? I'm like, oh, no, I didn't. I should go do that. Like, we should maybe have a talk with them about 12 or 13 about why we asked Bella specifically that question. <laughs> but when, when the kids get super riled up and super rambunctious, instead of hey, knock it off, hey, go outside, hey, do something else, hey, take up less space, and say, hey, Bubby, do you want to have a cuddle? And he comes and he hops on my lap, and we hug for a minute, and we take some deep breaths, and he calms down, and I calm down, and then I'm not in sensory overload anymore. Mm-hmm. He has found an outlet for his energy, mostly because he wanted attention mm-hmm. in that moment, and then everything's good for about 20 minutes until, you know, six-year-old brain comes right back, yep. which is totally fine. But it helps me center myself in a way that is not asking him to take up less space. Well, and it seems to perhaps be a way to model the idea of what Sonia talks about in this book of like radical self-love and mm-hmm. that not being self-esteem, that not being self-acceptance, but mm-hmm radical self-love allowing space for yourself and your own body in the world mm-hmm. and allowing yourself to take up that space yes because okay. when when kids are kids mm-hmm. <laughs> having <laughs> high energy and you know just all over the place that so so often You'll hear like, Hey, knock it off or, you know, calm down or whatever. But like, if you are actually interacting with the child in a way that is accepting of whatever is happening in that moment and offering them some sort of love, whatever love looks like, Mm -hmm. that is such a different approach, such a different approach. So interesting. I love this conversation. Um, What do you think about 
where she says, uh, or is it something like, why does it have to be radical? And, you know, defining radical and, um, oh, here we go. Is, that, is this it? Okay. Yeah. It says, why must it be radical? And that's like the whole subheading of this section. Okay, Sonia, I get it. Loving ourselves is important, but why do we have to be radical about it? To answer this question is to further distinguish radical self-love love from its fickle cousins, self-confidence and self-esteem, or its scrappy kid sister, self-acceptance. It requires that we explore the definition of the word radical. Language is fluid and evolutionary, regularly leaving dictionary definitions feeling dated and sorely lacking in nuance. How we construct language is an enormous part of how we understand and judge bodies. The definition of radical is a powerful one as we explore the relationship to self-love. And she uses the dictionary.com definition of radical as, well, there are five different um, steps here, but of going of or going to the root or origin, fundamental, a radical difference. Thoroughgoing or extreme, favoring drastic political, economic, or social reforms, forming a basis or foundation. And the fifth one is existing inherently in a thing or person. And then she says, radical self-love is deeper, wider, and more expansive than anything we could call self-confidence or self-esteem. It's juicier than self-acceptance, including the word radical offers us a self-love that is the root or origin of our relationship to ourselves. We did not start life in a negative partnership with our bodies. I have never been a toddler, I have never seen a toddler lament the size of their thighs, the squishiness of their belly. Children do not arrive here ashamed of their race, gender, age, or differing abilities. Babies love their bodies. And just like the idea of getting back to the origin of the relationship we had with our bodies and that that was loving, getting back to that space, how we came to be on this planet and utilizing that as the concept of radical self-love, I just think is fucking beautiful. I absolutely loved it. Um... And that was interesting for me. I was interested to see how she was going to tackle the explanation of that because I did kind of anticipate that in the book Um, because you hear terms like feminist and then radical feminist Mm -hmm. and it has this awful connotation. They're extreme. They're so far beyond intense or they're taking it for what it's not supposed to be um, is what outside sources have taught me or had taught me what that meant. Well, and Um, when you hear that someone has been radicalized, it's generally in some sort of violent extremist sect of some sort, whether that is white supremacy or Mm -hmm. ISIS, you know, or like whatever, like when you hear that someone has been radicalized, it is generally not toward love (laughs) of any kind. I know. And I find that so fascinating because when we apply it to people or concepts, it's a terrible, awful thing. But, and I, forgive me, I don't know when it was coined, but rad used to be a slang term for awesome, cool, so great. Yeah. And I I was a kid, it was totally a term that was said because (laughs) I was a kid in the 80s. (laughs) Right. And it, I really find it interesting how completely polar opposite those two uses are for one, Mm -hmm. Um, but for using it to note coming back to your center um, and that radicalized, um, I think it's the first definition that you had said was going back to the original state, Mm -hmm. going back to the center. I think that is so fascinating because, I mean, like she says, babies are fat. Have you seen a baby that, like, introduced to their feet? Oh, yeah. It is amazing. Or to a cat. Oh, my God. Yeah. That is the best. And, like, we don't hate ourselves when we're six months old. First of all, we don't know what that is, which is great. And I wish that that continued. (laughs) The same. (laughs) (laughs) 
But like, it takes, because you can't, I've heard self-love so many times. I've heard self-care so many times. I've heard self-confidence so many times. And all of the little things that fall under the overall concept of radical self-love. Radical self-love, as she says, it packs a heart punch. Mm-hmm. It's more, hey, pay attention, look at this, do this, mm-hmm. than, you know, the things that we can brush off is, oh, it's just self- self-love. Like, yeah, I love myself, kind of, usually. But radical self-love is like, I love myself. And yeah. I love the people around me. Like, that is the distinction between the two. And I think that it's really important to make sure that that word radical continues to be part of this. Yeah, I agree. And utilizing that type of language along with language like body terrorism, I think could be if someone weren't to actually read the book and just like hear those terms could be taken as sensationalized language trying to like, you know, news headline the shit out of something. And like, that's Mm -hmm. not what is happening here at all. The amount of, the amount of research that has clearly gone into this book due to the number of quotes and citations in here, um, certainly lends itself to the idea that what she's saying, like stands on something and it is not sensationalism. Yes, I did. I was reading it and I, uh, last week I took, last week was my break week between classes and like starting to do work and stuff again. And I read six books in in five days and it was like, look at me reading, doing things that I enjoy. I was like, I'm going to read the book of the week for the Rexley Collective now. And I said, I Taught myself taking a lot longer. I mean, I was reading 400 page books in a day, and this was 161 pages in the ebook, and it took me three or four days to read it because I was going much slower. I was taking notes. I was really absorbing the material, but I was also like three o'clock this morning. I was like, I just want to be done reading now. <laughs> Why did I read all of these other books so much faster? And I'm reading this one so slowly. And I think it stops at page, it's got like 20 pages in the ebook that are just like the index and the um, citations. Mm -hmm. It's got so much that it stands on, so much that she references. And I had kind of decided while I was reading that I wanted to, here we go, Uh, page 124 starts the notes and it goes to page 161. So just shy of 40 pages in the ebook version of index and notes and citations. And it shows, as you said, how much research went into it, but it's not just, it's not like paltry research. It's not just, oh, I'm gonna cite this thing so that I cited this thing. It's scholarly journals. It's uh, like she cites uh, Brene Brown and Angela Davis and people that are at the top of their respective fields mm-hmm. in psychology and in activism and that really understand what is going on and make direct links to this has a leg to stand on. It has an entire table to stand on if you look at. Well, and she also doesn't take any, um, she doesn't use any of her sources or cite any of her sources as though they are inherently perfect. Like Marianne Williamson, for example, people got a lot of thoughts about Marianne Williamson. I don't Mm -hmm. give a fuck. Like in some respects, she talks about her work as being really um, in line with the idea of the ideas that she she talks about in this book, the ideas that Sonia talks about in this book. Mm -hmm. And then she also calls her out on thin privilege and diet culture, like bullshit that she, she touts with some of her other stuff. And so like when she is citing sources, it's not in a way that has not been scrutinized. Yes. Everything has very clearly gone through intense scrutiny in order to be part of her research. And I love that. Right. It's, 
it's wonderful to read a book and there's actually even a section of it in the book that is um what is that arguing without getting angry or some something to that effect um and it discusses being open to other perspectives even if you vehemently disagree with what the other person is saying being open to it because then you're creating a constructive dialogue you're practicing radical self-love for yourself and for others and you're existing in compassion whether or not you agree with the other person that is the only way that you're going to be able to open up conversations to be able to potentially change minds mm-hmm. or to maybe realize that you yourself were wrong. Right. Yeah. The whole section five, how to fight with love is all about yeah. that. Not only on like an individual level, but also within the broader context of creating social change. Mm-hmm. And I, I was watching, um, I was watching, no, this was on Facebook. Um, I mean, I was watching this video, but it was on Facebook, um, <laughs> today there was, oh God, what is her, her name? There's somebody that I follow who that's going to come to me. I'm probably going to post it in the group later just because <laughs> now it's, now it's going to be on my brain. Um, but she, she does these videos that are just like little, little quips sometimes more in-depth things, but are her own philosophies about like essentially radical self-love. And today her message was something like, you know, healers and shamans and witches and like whoever else is in like this sort of esoteric realm, we are being called, this is our time. We need to be practicing in the streets. Like that kind of thing is, is her message today. Um, and I don't know where I was going with this. So I was trying to find, I was trying to find her name. Damn it. What did I start with? Oh, why did I say this? Oh, oh, social change, mm-hmm. radical self-love and social change. And, and she was talking about how, like, we are being called to fight. We are being called to, you know, warriors. We are being called now is our time, da, 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 practicing in the streets. And at the same time that like this fight cannot be rooted in anger use the anger, but the fight must be rooted in love, you know, have the anger, but do not live in the anger. You have to be fighting from love. And I think that so often, and I mean, this is, this is what I found myself. And this is what I have seen in tons of activist circles is when we allow anger and fear to fuel whatever kind of fight we're, we're, putting ourselves into, whether it's with another person or a system of oppression, um, it's not going to be sustainable. Mm -hmm. The only way to actually sustain whatever you're, you're up against to sustain yourself coming at whatever you're up against is to come at it through love. Make sure that you are grounded in love. And when you are grounded in what Sonia calls radical self-love, that is always going to be sustainable. Not because you're always going to be go, 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 and like battle, 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 but because you're going to know when you need rest and you're going to honor that. You're going to know when you can stand up and fight and what that needs to look like for you. And you're going to honor that. And you're going to be able to approach whatever the fight is from a way that will be sustainable for you. And that's just like, such a different message than what I have seen in most activism circles. And fuck, maybe it's because I have often been in white activism circles. I don't know. Maybe that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, though I haven't always been in white activism circles, but like, it's just such, such a different message rooting your fight in love, whatever that fight is love for yourself, love for your other person, it's just so different. It is. And I, I have had the unique, of expe- the unique experience of going through your coaching program mm. and then reading this book. 
Mm-hmm. So you've already taught me to have compassion for myself and to have compassion for other people and how to <clears throat> approach arguments, disagreements, and setting boundaries and honoring boundaries and taking care of myself through coaching tools and coaching practices. And part of that, while I didn't know at the time because I hadn't read some of these books, I can see some of your teachings in the Radical Self Book book. There were several times that I was reading that I was like, oh my gosh, Kelly teaches this. Um, And it has changed the way that I approach myself. Um, I couldn't have loved my body if I hadn't found compassion for my body. Mm -hmm. Uh, I tried for 26, 25 years. That didn't work. I tried having compassion and I'm a hell of a lot closer than I ever was before then. Um, in some ways that I, I love my body and other ways I've realized I need to address some of the body shaming and the everything else that I have, especially as you know, recently the ableism, mm-hmm. having a walker now that's new. And I've, I always thought consciously thought I was like, I'm really good about things. I try to make sure that the places that I go are physically accessible. I'm very aware when I create a website that whatever color palettes I use are accessible for colorblind people because I want them to be able to see what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, putting things like this in, but I didn't realize until I had a walker and I went to Chicago, how inaccessible it actually is. Yeah. It looks kind of accessible. Like even here in Lawrence, there's a lot of buildings that are accessible because they're on the ground floor, but there's no button outside. And I don't know um, if you've ever experienced trying to open a heavy ass door with a walker (laughs) with like my backpack and with everything else that I've got going on. That is not fun. Yeah. Um, Or like the, the Willis tower in Chicago. Mm -hmm. It used to be the Sears tower. You go in the very front doors are the big revolving doors. Mm -hmm. And I love whimsy. I want to go through the revolving door. The security guard was very sweet. He's like, you can go this way. And I was like, no, I want to go through the revolving door. Here's the thing. To be able to go through the revolving door and have that experience, which is the front door. Yeah. If you need accessibility options, you have to go off to the side. You can't come in through the very front in the center. You have to go off to the side. And it's mm-hmm. like a 40 or 50 foot, maybe a, maybe that's an exaggeration. It's probably like 10 or 20 feet, maybe. Um, distinction. But I had to push my walker through and have my friend catch it on the other side. And then I had to go through. You can make the door bigger. Mm-hmm. It's an option. Mm-hmm. There's other ways to do this. You could put a door at the center that people can go through who need the accessibility or who just don't want to fight with the revolving door. Uh, yeah. And put the revolving doors on the side. Like there's, there's options that don't shove people who need accessibility to the side. Mm-hmm. Um, and until I experienced that, I didn't realize how much of that I wasn't seeing. Well, and how could you, I mean, we only have the lens through which to see that is our own experience. Mm -hmm. And until you have an experience that draws your attention to something, your, your brain's going to filter it out because it doesn't apply to you. Right. And of course, that means privilege, mm-hmm. but also like, how could you have known? Right, right. And it's, it was difficult to face. It hurts to face that in myself. I, so I was like, oh my God, here I am thinking, so great because <laughs> definitely not how I actually think about it, but like, no, I look for accessibility options. I try to make sure that I am conscious of this and holy shit, have I not been? And I didn't even know. And it really reinforces what Sonny teaches in the book that it is imperative that this teaching that radical self-love becomes a point of social change, mm-hmm. becomes something that we can apply to society because that would be a non-issue. Mm-hmm. 
it wouldn't be my experience would not be the norm anymore because it would just be Mm -hmm. it would just be accessible easily and without question yeah and I think what you're touching on not touching on what you're describing um Mm -hmm. touches on a concept that this is this is often misheard when I say it, so I'm going to be very clear. Um, I cannot possibly know what it is like to be a transgender person or a person of color. I cannot possibly know that. Mm -hmm. What I do know is the discrimination I have experienced being gay. Mm -hmm. And because of that, because of having that discrimination against myself and understanding some of the things that I can change about my appearance in order to quote unquote pass in society. Not that I do present myself in order to quote unquote pass, but things that I can do to quote unquote pass in society as a straight woman, we'll say. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives me a bit of recognition to understand ways in which I do have privilege that I cannot see. Mm -hmm. And so like what you're talking about here just makes me think of all of the ways in which I know that I have some privilege, but I don't really know what that means in terms of personalized experience. But I know that I have it because I know what it means to be on the opposite end of that privilege, straight privilege versus like not having straight privilege. I have been kicked out of restaurants. I have been fired from jobs. I've not always presented in the feminine way that I do and have had discrimination because of that. And so like that gives me an understanding of what it means to be discriminated against and therefore helps me to understand where I know that I have privilege, even if I cannot comprehend what that means from the other side of that privilege. And you're tapping into this idea of like, holy shit, my eyes are now opened to a whole different type of privilege or a whole different level of privilege that I had that I thought I understood. And Mm -hmm. we can only understand it to a certain degree but simply understanding that our, our understanding has limits, I think is the foundation to being open to learning more about the privilege that we do have so that we can see more, if not all, obviously, but more of where our privilege exists so that we can find ways to incorporate find ways to make things more accessible, find ways to be more inclusive in the ways that we live our lives and then further expand upon our understanding of the privilege that we have to then further incorporate, further expand, you know? So just like creating a cycle of expansion and inclusivity instead of staying in the place that we are. And when we can do that, on an individual level, from the place of radical self-love, expanded outward, that's going to create social change. And it has to be done on an individual level first, because otherwise we can't show up for it. Yes, absolutely. Because how... I Rhetorical question, but... How could I possibly have shown up for myself with compassion when I realized I needed to have a walker because I have knee injuries, I have back injuries, and I want to be more mobile? How could I have shown up for myself with compassion and been able to confidently go out with my walker, to confidently take pictures of myself with my, I already don't like pictures of myself, and now you want me to take a picture of myself with my walker at my graduation? Absolutely not. If I had not done coaching if I had not learned compassion for myself and how to have compassion for my healing self, for my inner child, for my present self, for people around me, had I not been able to recognize and check myself, honestly, that, hey, you thought you knew, but you didn't know. You didn't 
didn't know what accepting was like. You didn't know the extent of the privilege that you had. If I had not come to those things in compassion, I would not leave the house at this point. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't go anywhere unless I absolutely had to. Not if I had to take a walker. Are you kidding me? I had changed so much to be able to have my walker. I used to drive a little compact sedan. I bought an SUV. That's why I went to Chicago was to buy an SUV to be able to take my walker places mm-hmm. so I can be out and about, so I can be comfortable, so I'm not in pain getting in and out of a car. And none of those things ever crossed my mind. I saw my little Mazda and I was like, oh, you can get a wheelchair in here. Okay, but then you can't have groceries in the car. Mm -hmm. You can't get anything else in and out of it. And also, good luck. Is the trunk big enough? Yeah, sure. You do it. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's heavy. Uh, With the Equinox that I have outside, are you kidding me? I have a push button that lifts my tailgate. Yeah. I just shove that thing in and go. It's so much easier. Like, and it's, if I hadn't had compassion for myself, I wouldn't have realized that I needed a new car and I wouldn't periodically marvel getting out of my car. Oh my God, I'm not in pain. Look at me go. Yeah. And it's so crazy. So if I can't show up for myself for those things, how can I possibly affect social change without compassion for other people, for myself? How could I ever show anybody like, how am I going to show up angry to this? Like, oh, you have to do this because you have to do this. Nothing changes when you're angry. Mm-hmm. Look at any fight that starts and ends with yelling. What changed? Mm-hmm. Nothing. You just now you're mad at each other. That's yeah. That's what <laughs> it's incredible. I really, really have loved reading Sonia's work on this. Um, because it's made me take an even deeper look at the ableism Mm -hmm. that is ingrained into me. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's also, as you were talking about earlier, you know, like the the things that we don't see from our privilege. My maiden name is Padilla. So before people met me, they assumed double L and Della, double L and Padilla. If they spoke Spanish, they thought my name was Dea Padilla. Mm-hmm. If they didn't, they thought it was Della Padilla, which is <laughs> going to be real, real with you, the whitest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and I am a white woman. I am, I'm so, I get a sunburn walking to get the mail. It is, <laughs> I am so pale. Um, but if people read my name on something and then they met me, I didn't realize until I changed my last name to Smith because of my ex-husband, how many more doors opened for me because Mm. my last name was now Smith. I believe that. And that's fucking gross. Before I had no idea because I grew up with the last name Padilla and I was like, oh, well, I'm white. I have white privilege. And, you know, the context of an 18 year old uh, understands that at all. You know, I understood that I have privileges that some of my other friends did not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I changed my last name to Smith and I was like, holy shit, what's this? Mm-hmm. Nobody gets my name wrong anymore. I had somebody call me Daphne once. I have never <laughs> somebody call me anything but Della or maybe Delia because they like glance at my name too fast. Um, shut up, Nathan. <laughs> What is Nathan's comment? <laughs> he said Delilah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, Delia or Delilah. Um, but something extremely close to Bella. Well, my last name is Padilla. And all the time. And arguably, people read my name on lists way more often now as an adult than they did when I was a child. Because they would typically call my parents, not me. Yeah. And it is bananas. And like, I went into that at 22, 21, I think, when I changed my name. And I was like, oh, that's weird. And of course, then I didn't have any kind of concept of tools to do it. I was just kind of like, 
something feels weird and I couldn't put my finger on what until a couple years later and I was like holy shit Mm-hmm. it's my last name because mm-hmm. somebody somebody actually out, outright said it to me once um, some, it was somebody that had known me for a really long time and they said it in a place of you know I don't necessarily want to say love but in not hate of mm-hmm. your face matches your name now mm. you're a white woman with the last name Smith mm-hmm. instead of a white woman with the last name Padilla mm-hmm. so people see that privilege and they match it even if they haven't seen you Mm -hmm. and it was just it was bananas to me Mm -hmm. oh my goodness my goodness I'm not being treated like some lower life form because I have a Spanish last name it's so interesting to grapple with the idea of a white person having that kind of experience with your name. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, you hear all the time of the, the trope of, you know, somebody changing their name on their resume so that it sounds more white or whatever, and then getting mm-hmm. like a call from the company or whatever. Um, not that I'm saying it's a trope because it doesn't happen, but like, just because it's so commonly cited. Yes. Yes. Um, and for you to actually have that experience and go, okay, I am a white person. And now mm-hmm. I understand just how much privilege white privilege does afford because my name does match, you know, my name is Smith now instead of something that sounds perhaps non-white, like yeah. that just is such a fascinating, it's, it's like a, like a case study in your own life. It is. I mean, it's not something that I ever understood or realized until like the last couple of years. I've been like, oh my gosh. You know, one of my friends at one point, we were talking about this and she asked me, she's like, well, are you going to change your name back to Padilla? I was like, I don't know. It's like, on the one hand, why would I want to take that away from myself? Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, why would I want to keep that for myself? Mm -hmm. And it's such it's a weird dichotomy and I'm not legally divorced yet because that's expensive. Um, we've been separated for two years. We've been separated longer than we were married. <laughs> and, but, you know, so the paperwork hasn't come in. I haven't had to make that decision. It's like, it's such a, that was the moment that I realized how awful to the extent that I can comprehend it, which is the smallest sliver of understanding. Mm-hmm. Why would I change my last name back to Padilla when it would potentially hurt me? And like, so of course, people with obviously ethnic names would change their name on their resume to get the job or to just get their foot in the door. Mm-hmm. And how that hurts so much to know that someone has to do well it's fucking body terrorism like that's exactly what it is it's body terrorism it's like your name sounds like you probably have brown skin therefore like it's fucking body terrorism that's god it's so gross it is it is and it's just it's not something that without Sonia's book, I would have realized was body terrorism. Because if you came up to me and said, your name sounds Spanish in some capacity or sounds brown in some capacity um, or just not white in whatever capacity, um, and that's body terrorism. I'd be like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. How? That's a name. This is a concept. Um, and body terrorism? Why does that match? Because racism is body terrorism. And that mm-hmm. is what the name meaning roots from that's why it's a problem racism is body terrorism and it's revolting it's so disgusting how the systems that we have in place supposedly everything's better now supposedly we have all of this but look at the incarceration levels look at the redlining look at the funding for school districts it's not better they just changed the game yeah that's exactly that's right. All they did. Exactly right. And that's why it's so 
important. And this, this work, 124 pages in the ebook, has so much valuable information. So much. That I could read my 400 page books in less than a day, just devour them, enjoy them, and move on. And this took me four days to comprehend. And I have every intention of going back through it and reading it again when the physical copy gets in. Mm-hmm. Because it's so intrinsically valuable information. Mm-hmm. Um, it just blows my mind. Yep, 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 yep. Same. Okay. It is 7.30. Casper is losing his mind, I think, partially because of the weather <laughs> and now partially because of me in here. Um, <laughs> but um, are there any other things that you want to pull out about the book before we close this convo down? Um, the only other thing I had was in... There's another big one that I have. Uh, Oh, I can't find it in the notes. There's too many things, but I really liked that she touched on body shaming origin stories. Mm -hmm. At what point do you remember being indoctrinated to this? And it's always so young. So, so young. For me, it was four. That was the first time. Mm-hmm. that's so little mm-hmm. that's so disgusting um but another aspect of it was the different forms of body terrorism takes and again through the lens that I view things I didn't realize until I was reading that passage that I had experienced trauma when I had the flu mm. not because I have a flu mm-hmm. that's awful but that's not why I went to the hospital here in Lawrence. It is the best hospital I've ever been to. My gynecologist is incredible. The surgeons that I've worked with are incredible. I absolutely love everything about going to this hospital. Um, they take care of their self-pay patients. They're wonderful. They also pushed me out of the hospital while I had the flu when I was too incoherent to understand what they were telling me and how to take care of myself with the flu and had me signed paperwork when I was not coherent enough. I had a panic attack leaving the hospital because I didn't feel ready to leave the hospital and I was not physically capable to advocate for myself saying that. Mm-hmm. But they pushed me out of the hospital because I had a partner here that they could just tell him. Mm-hmm. So they mm-hmm. could get me out of that bed. Mm-hmm. And if that's my experience, which has the Della Smith white lady, everything that I get to experience the world through that privilege that I get to experience the world through. What else is there? And so body terrorism doesn't just, I think that's why body terrorism specifically is such a great form for it and such a great title for it because it's not just body shaming. Mm -hmm. It's not just racism. Mm -hmm. And it infiltrates every aspect of our lives. Every Um, aspect. And that is not something that I fully considered before reading this. Yeah. And, and she talks about like, of course it has to influence or impact every aspect of our lives mm-hmm. because the one thing, the only thing that every single one of us has in common is that we have mm-hmm. a body mm-hmm. and that's it. Absolutely. And that's it. A year and three days and I don't have a body and I can just live in a cabin with no government and be alone. (laughs) (laughs) Until that day um, comes. (laughs) Yeah. I think the last thing that um, I want to pull out is the four pillars of practice. Mm -hmm. Taking out the toxic, mind matters, unapologetic action, and collective compassion. I think these four pillars are fucking brilliant. Mm -hmm. And I am a hundred percent on board with this concept. Yes. It's, I like that it gives 
a very clear guideline for how to put this work into practice. When I ordered the book, I also ordered the workbook that goes with it. Mm -hmm. And I'm so excited for that and to experience that because I haven't seen it yet. Um, and how to take the lessons that Sonia teaches from the very basic body shaming, what body terrorism is, what radical self-love is, to how to put it into practice and social change. And like you said, in pillar four, collective compassion. Mm -hmm. That is where that's going to take place. And I'm so excited to get that workbook in and to start applying all of that mm -hmm. to life. I can't wait to hear about your experience with that workbook. I think that yeah. I think it's going to be really profound. I think so. If anything beyond reading the book was, then definitely. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. Well, thank you so very much for this conversation. It has been delightful. I'm so glad um, to have had the opportunity to, to discuss this book specifically with you because I know that it was a like we were even talking about this book and Sonia Renee Taylor as like her work in general before I even put the book list together. Um, mm -hmm. And so like the impact that that has had on you and that this kind of work has had on you. I am very glad that you and I got to have, have this conversation. So yeah. thank you. <laughs> of course. Thank you. I always wanted to do a book club. Well, well, here we are. <laughs> I like running book clubs because it gets to be books that I want to read or that I already love and I get to share with people. <laughs> Perfect. That's the way to do it. <laughs> All right. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you so much for the chat and I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.